I remember walking into Don Kirshner's office, there were cubicles, like 12 of them in the big offices that he had. And each cubicle had a piano and a window. And, and there would be a team of writers or one writer knocking out a song. It could be Carol King and Jared Goffman. It could, it could be Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. It could be Neil Sedaka. It could be Tony Orlando, any of these people. And I walked into it and I said, well, listen to this. There's songs coming through the walls. And sure enough, you'd hear songs being written. And like three weeks later, they'd be on the radio. Hits. Genius. It takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I've got Ron Dante on the show today. Who's Ron Dante, you say? Ron Dante, that sounds familiar. Well, he was the lead singer for a hit group called the Archies. Their big number one hit was Sugar Sugar. Oh, honey, honey, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, you know it. Everybody knows it. People even younger than me know it. And it was a hit in 1969. It's really incredible. It's, it's, uh, this guy's so interesting. He writes Broadway shows. In 1978, he uh, produced uh, the show Ain't Misbehavin', won Best, best uh, Musical of the Year on Broadway. And he was also the publisher of the Paris Review, one of my favorite magazines, thanks to my dear friend Marty Schaefer, who got me a subscription. Marty Schaefer, Rebecca Tomlinson, and I all take the Paris Review. We read these little short stories that are befuddling and hard to read because they're so highfalutin and, and modern, angular, modern writing. Anyway, and then we get together and, and we talk about what they mean, what the author was trying to say. It's our own little mini book club. It's very, very exclusive. Only three members. Call me up if you'd like to join. But Ron Dante uh, was a neighbor of George Plimpton, who was uh, uh, the founder of the Paris Review, and, and uh, he was invited to be the publisher from 1978 to 1985. This is a guy who sang Sugar Sugar in 1969, wrote Broadway hits, uh, I mean produced Broadway hits. He's writing and producing a Broadway show right now with uh, Rupert Holmes, the uh, the Margarita song guy, just kidding. I say that in the interview, but it's the Pina Colada song. It's not even called the Pina Colada song. It's called Escape, I think. I think so. Anyway, I make a fool out of myself in that in that little segment, but I leave them in. You know, I've, if you've been listening to the show long enough, you know that I don't do much editing, especially when I sound like a real um, idiot. Uh, you know, we all do. We all do that sometimes. Hey, um, Annie Wu over at um, the 17th Street Dog Spa in Costa Mesa. That's where my mom used to get her dogs groomed. Uh, uh, saw my mom this week and she said, hey, Omar mentioned a, a month ago or so that he was taking Amy to see Hamilton. We never heard anything about that. So thank you, Annie, for reminding me to give you my short review of Hamilton. I loved it. I'm not a big hip hop fan, I'll be honest. It's so cliche to say, right? I like all kinds of music except for hip hop. But it's true. It's just not in my not my wheelhouse. It's not that I dislike it. I, I like listening to uh, Jay Z and whatnot. But uh, uh, anyway, so the style uh, I liked it. I loved the the music. I loved the rhythms. I loved everything about it. The first thirty seconds, I thought, "Oh man, I'm not going to be able to understand any of this." They're speaking so fast. They they there's like twenty or forty something. There's like twenty thousand words in this. A musical it's unbelievable um but right away you get it the the singers were so um uh 
excellent. The stagecraft was unbelievable. The way the chorus moves in the in the dual scenes in particular was mesmerizing. The way that the the principals in the chorus move around so much it makes the set look like it's moving, even though it's static, it's stationary. And the way that they bring in the furniture and strike the furniture and uh, I mean the volume of sound the the content it's so topical the way that the that the principals were mostly cast uh, with with black singers or Latino singers I found really beautiful in that the story is being told through the eyes of what America looks like today and I think that's absolutely appropriate and there there it brings up a discussion of cultural and racial appropriation which we're dealing with right now in the opera uh, we're doing Pearl Fishers by Bizet. And, um, you know, here's a French man writing about what was then Ceylon, which is now uh, Sri Lanka. Ceylon was a, an English, uh, what do you call it, colony. And so right there, you run into problems, number one. Um, but I, I've got, I don't know, I have different feelings about it. If we, if actors can't pretend to be something that they're not, the the acting in many ways will become obsolete there's no point to to act at all unless you you know especially for being cast for what you actually are uh so i mean does that mean that americans can't play english and the english can't play americans and a french actor can't pretend to be you know something else i mean i don't know so there's the cultural appropriation. There's also racial appropriation. Is it is it appropriate for a, a white actor to put makeup on to look like a Moor to sing Otello? Um, I personally don't have a problem with it. I think a lot of it has to do with context. Uh, you know, it's like reading Mark Twain. Well, we shouldn't read Mark Twain because he uses the N word in in his uh, you know in Tom Sawyer and in uh, Huck Finn. Well, those are masterpieces, and and when you Put them in context you understand what he's trying to say instead of fixating on the the details of the way that people actually used to speak you know what people used to say nigger all the time and it uh, it needs to be read about it needs to be talked about and it needs to be people need to be educated that that's not an appropriate way to talk about somebody and uh, the the way you do that is by educating people and reading things and teaching about context without context you follow the the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law and I am really against the letter of the law but most of you know that already anyway um, what else happy Monday did I mention it's hot 100 degrees stay inside or stay outside if you don't have air conditioning we don't have air conditioning but we've got uh, plaster walls and uh, half of the house is tolerable the other half I could fry an egg in so I try and anyway you know what it's not interesting. doesn't matter. Hope you have a great rest of the week. I have Ron Dante coming at you. Oh, if you like the show, go to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and review my podcast. It takes three seconds. It means so much more to me than anything else you could do. I used to ask for, for a little cash here and there, which is great, and I love it, and it helps. And thank you to those of you who have donated, people at the opera, friends, family, and listeners all over. I really appreciate it. But I'm trying to uh, go with a, maybe a different business model. So please go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. Thanks so much. Here's Ron Dante. 
Yeah, so I know Ted from this show. We've got a mutual friend named Paige Jackson. He's a bass player. I've heard him uh, speak of Paige. Yeah, yeah. Paige is a lovely, uh, mm. really great friend of mine and mm. a very talented musician. And he worked with Ted quite a bit. And um, my friends like the show just beyond belief. I can't, I can't believe that people actually listen to it. And uh, your podcast. <laughs> yeah, what exactly. do you call it? Yeah, it's, podcast. Yeah, it's just your podcast. It's yeah. great. You do it through iTunes and stuff. Uh, yeah, through iTunes and great. everything. Yeah. So Paige uh, turned me on to Ted, and he and I really hit it off, as you know. I mean, Ted is true blue. I mean, he's and he's a deep. He's a deep person. He really is. He's yes, deep and brilliant. Yes, he he's really not just is. deep. He's. I've worked with him for a quarter of a century, so I know him very, very well. Really? Oh yeah, since '92, I've been we've been working just about exclusively together on all my projects. How I bring wonderful. him in on everything. He's no joke, right? No uh, joke. He knows what make, he's doing. Make him, make him put it together. Yeah. And, great and, ears, great musician. And he's got that mind, and he does take direction. Yes. You say, go this way, do this, try the. Yeah, let's try it. Yes. And before you know it, you have something that you like and he likes. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. That's uh, that's always, to me, where the rubber meets the road is mm. being in the uh, in post and putting things together. And yes, man, that's tedious. The editing and the mastering. and Yes, but that takes, you know, that just takes discipline. And yeah. He's got that discipline to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you enjoy that part of the job as well? Besides... Very much. It's all artistic to me. Yeah. From the very inception of the song and the artist to yeah. the final, final mix, the final putting together of all the elements are, are very exciting to me because yeah. I, I don't do it technically I do it emotionally right that's the way I produce right right I'm right an emotional producer I'm a singer who produces not a not a musician who produces an engineer who produces I'm a singer who produces so I go for the voice first and I build everything under it right right is yeah. that how, is that how you started I mean you started as uh singing not producing right I mean yes you were I was a, completely... first and foremost a singer exactly now, uh, you're most famous for Sugar Sugar right. by the Archies, 1969. Yes. How on earth <laughs> does a song last so long? I'm 47. I knew growing up. I still know it. I talk to people at the opera. They say, oh, who are you interviewing next? Ron Dante. Who's Ron Dante? I said, well, do you know that song, Sugar Sugar? Well, oh, honey, honey. <laughs> everybody, everybody knows it. Everybody knows honey, honey. <laughs> How is that possible? How is that possible? Uh, I think it, it it it's something about the simplicity of it. It's like the Macarena or uh, some of these songs sure. that come along that just touch you and and have an e easily sung, right? It's not a rangy song. Uh, it's it's translatable into many languages because it was a hit in every country in the world. A friend of mine has sixty or seventy singles with Sugar Sugar, the, my original version, but with the local uh, language on it, from Poland to Japan to Czechoslovakia to South America, you name it, it was out. RCA was the record company, right? It was the distrib sure. distribution company. They made satellites, they were international. So they had an international distribution set. They, they put it out all over the place. The song was written in about 30 minutes by the two songwriters. One songwriter, one of the geniuses of the 60s, named Jeff Barry, mm -hmm. who had written before he wrote Sugar Sugar with my friend Andy Kim. He wrote um, Be My Baby. Sure. Uh, to do run run. Oh my God. Then he kissed me. Oh, wow. I honestly love you for Living Newton John. One year he won 16 BMI awards for writing with his wife, Ellie Greenwich. So when he came into the project, I knew we had a really good chance of having a memorable song because he was the producer and writer. And I think there's something, we caught something that night when we recorded it. 
that was uh, just lightning in a bottle. We caught right. it. We caught it, and and the song itself, the band was not getting it. The band was couldn't find the pocket. So the the co-writer Andy Kim, Jeff's co-writer, who wrote helped write the melody, came out and he played the guitar, but his pick broke. So he played the guitar with a matchbook. And that's what you hear flapping on the record is a matchbook playing the acoustic guitar. It's a great rhythm because you put other rhythms with it. You don't know what it is, but it sounds great. But the song had a simplicity that people can remember. It's now played on Disney radio right. for kids. Right. It's played on oldies radio for the above 50 group. And it's used in commercials. Uh, it's, sure. it's, it's the Indonesian Sugar Company uses it at their, their main song for the last 10 years. So it's it's amazing how that little song has lasted like other songs. Yeah. Yeah, other yep. songs come and go, but this one sticks. And it was recorded here in LA? No, it was recorded in New York City. In New York City. RCA's recording studio. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Now, uh, I know back in the day, and I think it's still happening, that producers put groups together uh, less organically than you would think a band is formed in somebody's garage. How did the Archies come about? Uh, the man behind the Archies was a guy named Don Kirshner. Now, Kirshner was very famous in the 60s. He had the number one music publishing company. Mm -hmm. he, his writers on his staff were Carol King, Neil Sedaka, Tony Orlando, um, Barry people. Mann, and Cynthia wow. Weil, who wrote Love and Feeling. He had 60 teams of writers on he, that he had signed personally to his company. So he was a monstrous music man. Wow. And he was the man about 66. He decided to be the music director of the Monkees. So he helped them have their top three records in the country. So the Monkees gave him some problems. They wanted to record and write their own songs instead of Carole King or Neil Diamond songs that he brought to them. So a few years later, they came to him uh, to do a, an animated TV series called The Archies, based on yeah, Archie's strip. comic book, sure. Betty, Veronica, Jughead, Reggie. Sure. So uh, he called, I knew him. I had worked for his publishing company. I was a staff songwriter. So he had called, you know, I heard about it. I called him up. I said, I heard you're looking for a lead voice for the Archies, the TV show. It's going to be on every Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah. I said, this is great. So I, can't, I went over to RCA Studios. Uh, I met Jeff Barry again, who I'd, I had known for years, and Don Kirshner, who I'd known for years. Sure. And they l let me sing one of the songs. And he said, oh, you, you, can be the vo you, you definitely should be the voice of the Archies. So that was it. The first day I recorded two or three songs. And we went on to do uh, three years' worth of mu music. And uh, we were the number one kid show. Sure. And uh, the music that came out of it took on a life of its own. Because people in Europe never saw the TV show, but yeah. they loved the music. So it seems like there was a new paradigm being born with the cross-promotion, television, product placement, and uh, ancillary products like dolls and games and things. It seems like that was kind of at the forefront of that. Yes, Don Kirshner started it with, uh, with the monkeys, big time. And when we did the Archies, he made sure we were on the back of Sugar Crisp. Mm-hmm cereal which you could cut out a plastic record a cardboard record and play it there were 10 million boxes put out that year 10 million so kids some kids in 1969 there was the first rock and roll they ever heard because they cut the little record out the, the cardboard record sure. put it on their record player and they could it would actually play and it would play for like 30 times but oh, that's, that's the way and there were two songs on each on each box and that was Don had, uh, you know, of course, they did lunch boxes and sure. games and puppets. Yeah. Well, I have them in my, uh, you know, I, <laughs> my your, mom kept them all. Plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I would imagine that that period in, in, of your life in the uh, mid to late 60s, it seems like, I mean, tell me if I'm, I'm right. It seems like it was born out of that Brill, that Brill building 
tradition of you know over the transom uh songwriting um was that how it was were you in just a big uh building full of songwriters churning out hits or how does it I mean, yes that doesn't I, happen I, anymore yeah, i don't think it doesn't they don't have groups like that right you know uh, where all the talent comes together right and kind of competes against each other right because when i started out with don kirshner it wasn't in the brill building it was right across the street right. a, a building called 1650 which was brill building two mm -hmm. really right because it had hundreds of Hundreds of uh, managers, music mm -hmm. publishers, record companies. There was even a studio in the basement right. called Allegro. And I remember uh, walking into Don Kirshner's office, there were cubicles, like 12 of them in the big offices that he had. And each cubicle had a piano and a window. And, and there would be a team of writers or one writer knocking out a song. It could be Carol King and Jared Goffman. It could, it could be Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. It could be Neil Sedaka. It could be Tony Orlando, any of these people. And I walked into it and I said, well, listen to this. There's songs coming through the walls. And sure enough, you'd hear songs being written. And like three weeks later, they'd be on the radio hits. So it was, it was a magical time. And Don was a very smart man. He gave little advances to every writer he had. Mm -hmm. So they had every Friday, he made sure all his writers got paid. Mm -hmm. Not a ton, but it was an advance against royalties. And oh, so he shared royalties. Oh, yeah, right away. Everybody got their royalties. It was a BMI thing. Uh, Broadcast Music was his company. So that was the big change. I mean, that was the big change where songwriters were suddenly getting a piece of their own action, right? I mean, you, usually they were just employees. Yeah, well, like if you worked at IBM and you uh, you invented a computer, you're not going to get royalties on that computer. That's right. And that's how the music business used to be. It was kind of like, yeah, those days. But this was very legit. It was wow. very legitimate. Uh, everybody got a piece and they got an advance on what they would make. So uh, everybody was happy there. People were, and he would give you a budget for your demo, $125. <laughs> you, you go in and you hire three demo musicians yeah. and a singer. Yeah. In my case, I could sing. So I, I, just, I was making records at 16 and 17. And they were, it were kind of fun. And it was a learning experience. But that kind of thing will never come again. Where there's a, a it's like a university right. of, of songwriters and, and, and um, aspiring producers. Because right. I learned my production techniques at the knee of some of the greatest producers in the world. I got to work with Quincy you know, or um, uh, Phil Spector. I did some backgrounds for him or, or uh, Jeff Barry, who produced Neil Diamond at the time. Sure. So I would watch and I'd listen. I'd be the background singer. Sure. So I, I could mean, just sit I mean, in the booth and work. The only place that I know of that still operates in that way is Hans, Hans Zimmer, uh, a remote control studios where it's just building after building of of really? writers really smart and he kind of pits them against each other and he says there are so many cues in this next star wars picture whatever he's working on and here it is and here it is go to it and it's really interesting really? and what he does a the smart same. guy and he, and he makes you know he gives royalties and the whole thing's a very Why not? similar there's a big enough pie for everybody yeah it's a very similar you don't have situation. to be greedy in this business right now did you grew up in new york is that right i'm a new york boy yeah <clears throat> were your parents musicians nope no, okay, father, so you're yeah. saying you're writing songs at 16, 17, 18 years old. How did that happen? Well, I just, uh, when I was about 12, I fell out of a tree playing guitars and busted my arm up really badly, my wrist especially. And the doctor said, it's going to be stiff the rest of your life if you don't move that wrist constantly. You should squeeze a ball or something. And I said, how about an instrument? Yeah. And, 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 and my dad liked the idea and I liked the idea. Elvis was my idol at the time. The Everly Brothers were my idol sure. at the time. They played guitar and sang. So uh, my dad bought yeah. me a little guitar and we plugged it into a Webcore tape recorder. And we used that as the speaker. And I started writing songs at 14. 
Just a couple year. of years later, about a year later, I was starting to write songs. I formed a little group called the Persuaders. And uh, the Persuaders, if you didn't like our music, we persuaded you to like our music. <laughs> you know, we played CYO centers and, uh, you know, uh, the tri-state area. And uh, it was it was a great uh, thing. I had a live group. I mean, did you just learn by ear? Yeah, uh, I took lessons for about a year, guitar lessons. I see. Yeah. And I could always sing. I sang from when I was six years old. I started to imitate a guy named Johnny Ray, who was very famous in the 50s, yeah. uh, early 50s, my dad's favorite singer. And he, 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 he had a thing called uh, Cry and The Little White Cloud That Cried. That was his hit single. And I learned both of those at six years old. But it take, took me till 12 to really start to sing when I got that guitar in my hand. Yeah. All of a sudden, I had a band in my hand. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And you were gigging when you were in high school. I was gigging when I was in high school. In fact, the first gig I did, I busted my leg. I was always breaking something. What? I broke my leg the night before the gig. They put a full cast on my leg, and I went on stage with the cast on. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're not going to stop me from my first gig. And you've never lost the desire to do that. You're still performing. I, I perform because I love to sing. I'm basically a singer at heart. I love to use my voice. I love to do backgrounds and ha create harmonies. Sure. And I listen to other backgrounds that are done today, yesterday, and tomorrow. I just I'm 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 I'm, a, I'm learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep learning, and and there's always something new to learn. Sure. You know, even if it's just you don't start the ahs in the chorus till the second beat. Somebody just showed me that. Don't start it on the downbeat. Start it on the second beat. It's more effective sometimes. Right. Sure. Know, Little simple things. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you're in high school. You're writing music. You're gigging. Tell me about the day before uh, Sugar Sugar came out and the day after. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the day before, I was a commercial singer. I was singing commercials in New York City, doing uh, jingle jingles. singer, mm -hmm. jingles. I sang jingles right and left. And I was doing pretty well. Not great, but pretty well. A couple of jingles a day. Because I knew all the jingle houses in New York City. They knew my tenor and my falsetto. I was yeah. one of the few guys who could do the Beach Boys and Frankie Valli and Lou Christie's high falsettos. So I could, I, I, they liked me for that. I was a tenor like you. Mm -hmm. And um, that day before I was singing commercials, the, uh, the day after Sugar Sugar came out and when we'd hit the charts, uh, we knew something was happening. But I remember uh, a few weeks later, I went to uh, buy the nighttime billboard that comes out on a Sunday night, Billboard magazine, so you know what's going to happen on Monday. And I opened Billboard, and it was number one. And I said, this is my first number one record as a singer. I don't care. My name's not on it. It's me. It's getting played once an hour in every city in the world. So uh, my jingle career went crazy. Because nobody in jingles was ever a pop hit singer. Sure, they were like they were. We were jingle singers. We had to read the music, read the flies on the music. You know, sure. be it ready to sing at seven in the morning. But there weren't people who had hit records singing. So all of a sudden, people said, "Well, can we get you?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm a jingle singer. I, I just happened to do this project for Don Kirshner." Yeah, and it took off. And for you wouldn't believe the amount of work that came in for uh, jingles. Even if I was just singing in the background, they liked to have me in the background when they could tell the client in the booth see that fella on the end singing he's the singer of sugar sugar you know that people get crazy yeah yeah and then uh, you had to make a choice at some point all right i mean you do you weren't singing jingles for much longer were you i mean you had to have gone on tour and put no that show no together there was and... no touring really it was the group was an anonymous group it was a cartoon group the deal was that they i would stay anonymous for a few years and sing for the archies which was a cartoon when sugar sugar went number one it, they played it on the ed sullivan show 
Ed Sullivan introduced the cartoon. And there was the cartoon singing Sugar Sugar on the Ed Sullivan show. So it was fine with me. I was always a background singer. I just did it for the work. I just wanted to sing, write, and produce. That was my aim in life. And so it was, everything worked. So I continued to do jingles all through the Archie's hits. I actually had another hit at the same exact time by another group. I was a group called the Cufflinks. And we had a hit called Tracy. Tracy, a lot of girls are named Tracy now. They were sure. little in their 40s. Uh, but Tracy came out under the Cufflinks. It was top 10 and number nine when Sugar Sugar was number one. So I had two records in the top 10 that nobody knew who I was, but I knew. And that and didn't bother you? Didn't you, bother you, you me never, at all. You, the, the limelight was never your bag. I didn't. I, it, I wanted the work. I, it was not an ego trip. I wanted to do it because I wanted to be able to use my instrument. How is that possible? I mean, I there, are many, good, people, there good... are many people like that. What? There aren't many people like that. I mean. Well, I, I don't know. It's just my upbringing. Huh. Uh, it's it's a it's a feeling of uh, it's uh, the group made it happen. Yeah, you know the people that wrote the song, the people that played the yeah. song, the people that promoted it. Um, everybody pulled together. I am not the one and only that did it. Uh, it, it there were many hands in that pie to make it happen, and a lot of luck, mm -hmm. a lot of luck. And I was and I was always grateful. Uh, you know, I'm a grateful guy to be able to use my instrument and whatever I can do. And now you're out touring. Before we started the, the, the interview, <laughs> yes. you were telling me that you had just gotten back. Tell me about the tour that you just returned I from. I just did a tour all summer from June to late August called the Happy Together Show. Happy Together Tour. It's with uh, the Turtles, who wrote, who wrote their big hit was called Happy Together. And they do five acts, six acts every summer. And they tour about 50 cities. And they asked me this year to be one of the acts. And the Turtles put the, put the tour together? Yes, the, Turtles uh -huh. put it together. Uh -huh. They're on the tour. Everybody gets about 25 minutes. And uh, on the tour with me was the association. Uh, the Box Tops doing The Letter, one big hit for them. Uh, the Cow Sills doing The Rain, The Park, and other things. Um, Three Dog Nights, Chuck Nygren was on the thing singing th all his Three Dog Night hits. Oh, sure. boy, did yeah. he sound great. He brought the house down every night. So we hit we hit all those cities and we sold out every city. Uh, we played the Pacific uh, Amphitheater down in uh, Anaheim. Yeah, sure. Over 10,000 people showed up. And they knew every word to every song, and they sang along with everything. And it was the most glorious tour in the world. It was rough because uh, you know I was younger when I used to do these tours. But, yeah, we were talking. I mean, I used to do some touring when I was in college, and I, I mean, you wake up not knowing what town you're in. You look for a Starbucks because it's the only thing that's the same, or Seven Eleven, or you know, it's 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 really exhausting. And you look fresh as can be. Well, I got I've gotten some rest since I've been home. <laughs> I've, I've been to a few places, but I'm still going out for a few more gigs. I got to go to Tennessee see next week and i've got to go to uh syracuse the week after to do a christmas show so, so it's i mean you're really out there working i'm out there working there's still a demand for this music and and if I, and i still sing it in the same keys you know i have no, loads that's actually was one of my questions you really do i sing everything in the same key uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that uh, i didn't smoke i didn't abuse my voice so my vocal cords are there when i need them that's amazing <laughs> Yeah. And Maybe. also, I'm looking at these posters, which we've also talked about. I'm sitting across from five posters of Broadway shows. And uh, I did some research uh, on you and, and the Archies, and I, I didn't know that you were produ a producer of Broadway. Yes. I, it's, it's, the funny thing is, I, I worked where I worked in New York City was mm -hmm. the Brill Building area, Tin Pan Alley, but mm -hmm. it was the theater area. Mm hmm. 
So I would see all the shows. I'd get in for a cheap ticket and I'd see the great shows that are on Broadway. So I always had an interest in theater, mm -hmm. especially musicals. Sure. It was like just really thrilled me to, to hear a live orchestra and somebody sing and fiddle on the roof or West sure. Side Story or King Funny and Girl. I. Sure. The mm -hmm. King, it's just a thrill. Yeah, right? to see Yul Brenner jump around, forget I've, it. It's a once in a lifetime right. to see him do that, King and I. Right. So I always wanted something to do with it. So at 22 years old, uh, a friend of mine, an orchestrator named Ron Frangipani, said he's been and he's been brought in to write uh, orchestrations for a show based on Billy Budd, the novella. Sure. And they need a music writer to write the songs for it. So I went to people and I said, "I'll do it." And they said, "Great, you're the, you're the composer." So I wrote like a dozen, two dozen songs, uh, and. We got a director. We got a stage. We were at the Billy Rose Theater. We opened at the Billy Rose Theater. I personally helped with backers auditions, raise about six hundred thousand dollars. And you were twenty-two years old. Twenty-two years old. And I wrote my first Broadway musical. God, I didn't know my ass from my elbow when I was twenty-two years old. Well, I was. I was. I had already been in the business six years. Right. I was an old hand. Right. I thought I was like a senior citizen of the music <laughs> business. But um, the show flopped. Nobody wanted a rock musical based on Billy Budd. Okay, there was already a a, 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 a beautiful opera sure. that, that was written, of yeah, course. Benjamin and Britain. Yeah. Benjamin Britten's opera. So I was compared to Benjamin Britten's well, opera. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had to lose. It's tough so, to make a happy ending out of that one, too. <laughs> right. It, it was a rock musical in sure. the days of hair. Sure. A rock band, but it was a beautifully done, a choreographed beautifully. Uh, Jerome Robbins came in and tinkered with some of the dancers because wow. uh, Grover Dale was our choreography, and he was close. He had been in West Side Story, this choreographer. So. We had some great people. So that really, I was bitten by the bug to get back into Broadway. So years later, I was at a party with a friend of mine named James Lipton, who does the uh, Actors Studio. Sure. And he says to me, I've got this new show called The Mighty Gents, written by a wonderful writer. It's a drama this time. I said, oh, it's a drama. He said, I said, let me read it. I read it. He said, we need a partner. It'll be the Schubert's, you and me. And I said, I'm in. Yeah. And that was my first show. You had me at the Schubert's. That's right. That's right. You had me at the Schubert's. I said, this is a partner I want. Right. So we did it. The show ran. It got some good reviews, not great reviews, so it closed. Yeah. But uh, the next thing, about a few months later, Jim Lipton came to me and said, there's a show at the Manhattan Theater Club in New York City called Ain't Misbehaving. Yeah. Now, were you just a money partner in Mighty Gents, or did you have some hand in writing any of the music or anything like that? No, it was just, just, uh, just a partner. Producer. Yeah, I put the money up. Despite the first thing that you did being a flop, and you see the kind of money you can lose, Big money. You, it didn't prevent you, obviously. From no, no, I, I wanted it. I, I said, this is, a, this is a, something I want to do with my future. Did and you make your money back on that first show? No, no. It was a total loss. That was, that was a big loss. And still you, <laughs> you were have to in pay it. to get the, the sets out. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, this is the loss. And then the Schubert's brought me in for a meeting. They said, now you have to pay more money. We're taking the to sets out, out and burning them. Oh, my God. Right? But so that was my introduction to theater. And But I loved it. I thought, And this, it didn't cure you of it? No. Oh, no. You were still... No. I, I thought theater was a great place. So uh, my, Ain't Misbehaving opened. I became a, a, a fourth partner with the Schubert's. And uh, I helped with the album. We did a cast album with RCA, my old label, yeah. which was a great cast album. Were there still some of the old guard there when you were when you came back? Was it like a homecoming in a way? When in a went, way, yes. Oh. Same same president, same nice. people. They were happy to get the album because it was a it was the best reviewed show of the decade. 
I, the reviews were unbelievably phenomenal. They're yeah. just everybody across the board thought this was a very special show, Ain't Misbehaving. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it won three Tonys. Commercial success, obviously. Yeah. Commercial success, ran for four years. Wow. And every 10 years it came around again with a new cast. It's still playing, it just played La Mirada Playhouse, uh, directed by one of the original members of the cast, Ken Page. He directed. It was a successful run down there. So it's still, after 40 years, still- Now, um, on the business end of that, how does that work? Do you still have ownership of part of that? Only for 30 years. I see. Okay. Yeah, it was a 30-year ownership run, and that now it's free. Public domain. Yes. People can come out and do it if they pay. You know, Got it. They Got pay it. for the songs. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's I mean, great. I love Fats Waller songs. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I love those sure. songs. Great classic stuff. So and, that's why I got bitten. And, and I, then I see Children of a Lesser God up there. Yes. Uh, my partner in it, uh, the Schuberts, and my friend uh, Emmanuel Eisenberg, a very good friend of mine, mm -hmm. the, the David Merrick of his day, mm -hmm. uh, called me and said, uh, while you're in Los Angeles, go out to the Amazon and see this little show called Children of Lesser God. Tell me what you think of it. I went to see it at the break. I called him. I said, this is a show we should bring to Broadway. This is one of the most magnificent shows about non-hearing people I've ever seen since uh, Miracle Worker. Sure. And, um, and he said, fine, we're, we're doing it. And again, our partners were the Schuberts. And we brought it in. And again, it won the Tony for best play. And it was a magnificent night in the theater. It just it tugged at your heartstrings. It's funny. Some of my venture capitalist friends yeah. in the music business, yeah. before when they heard I was putting money into it and going to produce it, they said, nobody's going to want to go see a show like that. Really, it's amazing how people will try to undermine your best sure. decision sure. because just it's erroneous information they right. have something they have a prejudice against something and and it could and if you're susceptible it could derail undermine you undermine everything right so you've got to really really believe what you know and know that it, it you know personally you like it and if it fails or succeeds you've done something you really care about and that was that was children i love children Melissa guy and did it do well it ran for 3 years jeez yeah it made tons of money it was a very big successful show and it, it, it toured all over the country was it a different ball game then than it is now with the sets and the amount of money that it takes and or was it all relative was it just as expensive then as it is no, no, the, the, the ante has been upped right? greatly. I think it's the Disney effect. When they started to put 12 to $15 million into a musical or a show that they're producing like Lion King mm -hmm. with $20 million, it just raised everybody's investments. Mm -hmm. So now it, it's, it's a very expensive area to, to get a show started. I'm working on two shows right now. Yeah. One is being written and it's based on the old game show, Name That Tune. Sure. Right? We're going to make a real show out of it. Not, it's not your old... You know, it's not your father's game show. Yeah. It's going to be a, a, a real story. And it's being written by Tony Award winner Rupert Holmes, who, who won three Tonys for The Mystery of Edward Drood, which ran sure. on Broadway in the 70s. So we've just signed him How on. Exciting. He's working on it now. And uh, we'll have it ready for next. We'll start to uh, get, the, get the theaters and things next year. That's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, now, does raising the bar financially hurt or help the art form, do you think? Uh, it, it, it's okay. It is. I think it's okay. You think there's enough room for everybody? There's enough room. There's, especially now, if you look at the producers of a show in mm -hmm. the Tony Awards, mm -hmm. <laughs> 20 people get up. So it's not just two or three people right. anymore. It's not David Merrick. It's it's not right. one or two, four right. people. The Schubert organization and a partner. It's 20 people. So it's opened it up to other investments, but a good show will get financed. Right. There's always good money around for that. People are really interested in this art form. It's having one of the best seasons it's ever had right now. Well, I just took my wife to see Hamilton. 
Hamilton. Holy shit. Hamilton. Uh, they said- they, That's somebody, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They said uh, things will be judged before Hamilton yes. and after Hamilton because of the way it's changed things. Yes. And, I mean, I, I make a living in an art form that's a few hundred years old. We do a couple of new operas here and there, but generally the hits are not new. Mm. And I came out of Hamilton with my wife, and the first thing I said was, I don't know how- Opera is going to survive, survive after. I, well, I'm going to be out of a job if this is the <laughs> shit they're putting out now. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You're right, but I, I think, I think the, the the shows that you do and the shows that are being done in traditions will never ever sure. go ever ever go away. There's, and there's always more people every year. Old, that's right. And and they bring their kids, and the kids grow up loving it. And before you know it, you know the, the market is still very strong. That's but right. But you're right. Hamilton did change things, um, just like Phantom did before that, and just like right. Hair did before right. that. And yeah. it, there won't be a ton of Hamiltons. Sure. It's it's just it just changed the complexion of, <laughs> so to speak, mm -hmm. of of what we're used to. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a brilliant move to make the president's multicultural. It was a brilliant move. I thought so too. And it, and it also opens it up to the inner city schools and yes. everything else that it makes it accessible to everybody. So it was a brilliant move on his part. I'm very proud of Miranda yes. to doing such a great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm. I've got to just take a break here. And look, I mean, the Tony Awards and the records on the wall. I mean, you, you've really, you really have lived a lucky life. I, I'm very blessed. I, <laughs> I know it. I know it. I, I, every day I get up and thank God. I saw, thank you. Were, for, were you ever married? Do you have kids? I had married a couple of times. Uh, didn't have any children. No children? No. Now, uh, I've had this problem. I... Before I started singing full time at LA Opera, I, I did I gigged around the world, and I still I do occasionally have a, a concert in Peru coming up next year. But I found it really really hard to have a successful uh, relationship, not only a marriage, but just a successful monogamous relationship. Mm. Being gone so much and True. being on the road so much was that a problem? Was did that contribute to? Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> getting married, getting divorced. Uh, I don't. I don't. I think uh, it, it has to do with me, and not not the not the profession. In what way? In, in the profession, I was super focused. Yes. On the music and of making the music, one way or the other. Everything else was subordinate. Yeah. To that. Everything else kind of took a back seat. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't really care about having a family. <laughs> I I wanted to make my music. And I, I met a few women that I really loved and sure. were on different professions. And uh, it just... Um, but I, you, just, I, you chose not to have kids. It's not like it just never worked out. You Well, it's not chosen. It, it, it just happened that way. Yeah. It just happened that way. I, I, I may have been happy if, if, if something happened, but it, it wasn't... God didn't mean for me to have that. Is it a regret for you or no? No. No regret. It's okay. Nieces and nephews, do you have... No. That's it. Are That's you an only it. child? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Only we're out here, and and right. You know, somebody once said the only child does not know the meaning of failure. That's true. Because <laughs> we keep coming back. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. That's true. We yeah. keep coming. Yeah, you back. just keep stabbing at it. That's right. You it, know, hey. It's funny how L.A. Sent, uh, attracts people like us too. I mean, I'm from L.A., but mm -hmm. I don't think I'll ever leave because I feel that this is my home. That there are people there. There are lots of us out here. Yes, lots, lots. We come here. 
for, and, and it's just the opportunities abound. Yeah. And, and, and you can be it, yourself. You, you can. Yes. And it's funny. It's some. It's a simple like growing up in New York. You did not drive yourself in Manhattan. You had a car, your cab or whatever subway. But out here, you're in, you're the king of your castle. You drive yourself everywhere. Yeah. You know, you have your own environment with you at all times. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's there's this something golden about this. Do you ever go back? Do you have family in New York still? I have relatives, but I don't go back that often. Mom That's and dad's it. gone. So yeah. I, no I, brothers or sisters. Yeah, no, no, yeah, just some cousins there, and I, so when I play the East Coast, they come sure. to the shows. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about. You mentioned. I want to talk about these uh, um, theater projects that you're working on. Sure. Tell me more about those. Okay. Uh, the uh, Name That Tomb is yes. uh, owned by a fellow named Ralph Rubenstein, yep. who uh, is a brander, and he came to me and an agent friend of mine, John Ferreta, and uh, said what can we do with this brand? So John said, well, let's talk to Ron about it. And I said, well, let's do a Broadway show about it. I said, especially if we can give it a story, yeah. something people to cheer about something, some backstory, God knows. And, and I said, and wouldn't it be great to have an audience involvement in choosing songs during the doing it, being able to vote on the songs from their seats sure. and, and, and win something maybe, but just audience participation. Yeah. And uh, they liked that idea. And I called my friend Rupert Holmes, who I had wor worked with many years ago. Sure. And Rupert loved the idea. He said, let's do it. So uh, that's the way uh, Name That Tune has come about. Why and, do I know that name, Rupert Holmes? Yeah, Rupert had a big hit song. Oh, the Margarita song. Yeah, right. Holy I, cow, are right. you serious? If you like pina colada. Of course, I like pina colada. Yes, not margaritas. <laughs> yes, of course. If you like making love at midnight. Right. Right. And getting in the caught tunes in, in the rain. rain. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Come with me. Yeah. I can't believe it. Yes. And, and it, it's called Escape. But everybody calls yes. it the Pina Colada of course, song. Escape. It's a great thing because he's very literate and he he's, he he loves writing intricate things. It's all about a guy who puts an ad in a paper, sure, wanting to course. meet somebody, it's a great story. and he doesn't realize that his wife answers Answer the, the ad. ad at the they end. meet up in a bar. I love it. I love. I really. I mean, everybody loves that. Yeah, song. yeah. So the funny thing is, in this show, name that tune. The backers audition is going to include two number one songs when we sing, because we're going to entertain the group when they come in. He'll sing Pina Colada. I'll sing Sugar Sugar. You know, when was the last time that a Broadway show had two people who had number one songs and they're involved in the creative process? That's a great idea. Yeah. So we're working on that. Also, there's a, a really good show I'm working on that's coming about. It's called In a Booth at Chasen's. And mm. it's the love story of Ronald Reagan and Nancy. And it's written by Academy Award winner Al Kasia, who wrote uh, the Towering Infernos theme, the Poseidon Adventure theme. They'll, 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 there's got to be a morning after. Wow. He, right. He's written the score. And uh, we have a backer. And that's on. Uh, that's being slated to get done. Uh, the financing is just coming in. And uh, we have a great partner and a guy named John Herklutz, who loves Reagan and wants to see this show out. It's a two-character musical. Yeah. Just two characters singing, dancing about the 1950s and the way they met and sure. his aspirations and her movie things. And so uh, I, I think it'll play all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't know. I was speaking so well of L.A. It's definitely L.A. centric. And you have got this La La Land uh, thing yeah. happening. And, oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah. And we'll get a great choreographer. We'll get a great stager. And we'll get two brilliant young people 
to play Reagan as 38 and Nancy at about 32. Sure. I mean, th- this town is full of great people who yeah. could play the role. You could play the yeah, Reagan you tell role. Me, tell me actually, when the auditions are. You let me know. Wait, wait. Actually, <laughs> you would be perfect for the Reagan. <laughs> I'm going to keep you in mind. Yeah, you let me know. No, because what are you, about 36? Okay, you look 36. There you go. You'd be great for this role. And we got to get, a, get a, a girl, you know, bring in a, a lovely someone to play Nancy and you'll sing all night. I love it. Right? Count me in. All right. That's fantastic. I like it, Omar. Ron, thanks for being on the show. You're a great guest. I'm so happy to meet you. I want to thank Ted as well. Thank you. Ted Perlman put us together. Yeah. And next time we'll talk about my Manilow records. Oh, actually, let's talk about it now. Okay. I want to talk about that now. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's start with that. How did you meet Barry Manilow? I mean, one of the biggest songwriters, song performers, entertainers of all time. Yes. I met him singing a commercial. See, jingles bring things to you. Commercials. I was singing a commercial for a, a Pepsi product, and the writer of the jingle was this fella, Barry Manilow. And it was a really good spot. Were you guys working in the same building? or no, Same studio. Well, no, we just happened I mean, to be called for the same spot. I was called as a background singer. He was the writer of the commercial. So we, they put us together in the studio. And accidentally. I, and I remember singing, saying, wow, this is a great arrangement, really cool song. And then Barry said, now we're going to sing background. You, me, uh, Melissa Manchester was on the date, and so was Valerie Simpson of Ashford and Simpson. What? So it was a really good group. And afterwards, Barry said to me, oh, you're Ron Dante. You had some hits and stuff. I'm a singer-songwriter. I would love to get a producer. And I said, well, let me hear some of your songs. So we met a few days later, and he played me Could It Be Magic based on the Chopin prelude. Sure. And I said, this is a super talent. Great voice, but look, Great at, what, musician. Yeah. Wait, look at what he can write. Sure. And he was working with Bette Midler at the time. He was Jesus doing her arrangements Christ. and producing with her. But he wanted to be a soloist. <laughs> sure. So I took him in the studio a few weeks later, and we did Four Sides. And a few months later, we did a backers audition, and a label came down and signed us. Signed Barry. So this was not under RCA. You no. just met under those circumstances. You went off to a separate room right. and talked it out. Right. And started your own thing with him. That's right. Unbelievable. And we did 10 albums together. And a year and a half after we met, there was a song called Mandy, sure, which springboarded his career, gave yeah. us our sound. I, I put the sound together. Yeah. I, I chose the musicians. I chose the studio. I mixed it. We even changed the name of the song from, um, um, it was called Brandy. We changed it to Mandy because it was already a Brandy hit. And we went on to uh, be on the charts for six years, seven years uh, together. Did you uh, do Copacabana with him I, as well? Copacabana was oh. my production. Uh, everything. I write the songs. Uh, oh, man. Could it be magic? And, of course, trying to get the feeling. Can't smile without you. There, there was. We had 18 hits in a row as a team. And uh, we're still friends. I still help him do vocals on his last album, the Ode to New York album he just did. He brought me in and we did some backgrounds together for all time's sake. And it sounds great. You know, so it's so funny. It's a 40 year friendship. How does that I mean, how do you go from? Well, first of all, so I've got a, a, a friend who's a composer and we've we've I've been hired by him. I've not been hired from him. I've traveled with him. I've not traveled with him. And we've managed to really keep our friendship at the forefront. Is that is that fair to say with you and Barry? How do you survive being so close and then having, I, I assume he moved on or? Yes, at a certain point he wanted to move on to other producers, yeah. other arrangers, yeah. try different types of music, jazz, Broadway and stuff. Yeah. And was, I that, was, was that I was hard? Just, was that... Well, it was okay. We had spent 10 years in the studio yeah. together and uh, it was time for him to move on. The contract was up. It, he had no responsibility to, to go yeah. any further and uh, we parted friends. And, uh, and you're still it, friends. It was, it was, yeah, we're still friends. 
and uh, you know, I respect his musical ability, and sure. he's a good guy. Does he, he live was, out here? Or does he live in New York? He lives in Palm Springs. In Palm Springs, yeah. right? And he's right. still touring. He just wow. he just completed a tour. He did like ten dates. Unbelievable. And uh, and they sell out. Ten twenty thousand people show up to hear him sing the uh, hits. So you've had the best of both worlds. I mean, you've been the producer behind the scenes, yeah, and you've been the front man, and you're still the front man, yeah. Yeah, and you like, get to live both, I, and you're still doing Broadway stuff. I'm still. Just, I don't know. Where do you find the energy? What do you? Are you a vegetarian? How does that work? No, I, I eat just like everybody else. I eat donuts. I eat bagels. <laughs> I don't believe it. No, come on. No, you should see this guy, not, people. Not, it's unbelievable. Not too healthy. No, nope. you know I like it, and uh, I got a good metabolism and um, I got a good energy source, which is I love the stuff I get involved in. Sure. It's all new. Sure. Right. Every even if you're doing a, something you've done before. Yeah. It, you have to apply something new to it, yeah. and, and, right? You just—it's yeah. it's always a fresh experience, right? And I, you gotta love it. You gotta love well, it. Well, that's the thing <laughs> with this business. There are two things that I love: obviously, performing it and the music, and I get to be on stage with Placido. And there are lots of perks to this mm. job. The thing that I like the most, though, is collaborating with people that I love. It's the people. Mm. The music business attracts the most interesting, lovely people. Yeah. In my experience i mean my wife is a musician that's how we met we have a, a a nice house and two beautiful kids could not have happened without the people that are in this business right no, no. we're the sensitives yeah we're the ones ones that feel everything we're the ones that walk in a room and feel the room yeah you know and if, if music plays in a movie we're listening to the soundtrack right we're, there's it's a whole different uh, breed of people right we, we just grow up differently and uh and we 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 notice Right. We notice. And also, our instrument, your instrument, my instrument, is us. That's right. Is our bodies. We don't pick up a violin or a you know, There's no hiding. Yeah. We, we, what you see is what you yep. get. What you hear is what you get. Yep. I still think you're great for the Reagan show. <laughs> I, I, really, I'm going to recommend you. I don't hope you don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind at all. You would be great, man. I think that would be You'd fantastic. Be you're, you're the voice. Uh, this is great. If you, if you, I mean, you've had a 55 year career at least right. one word of advice to all the young aspiring musicians out there one word one well, what would you one phrase one phrase yeah, yeah. that's you know I, it's it's rough the things have changed so much there's so much competition I, I would just think be honest with yourself do you have it do you not have it don't fool yourself if, if you have it never let go something like that I love it, Ron. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's great. Great meeting you. I think this was very auspicious that we met because I mean it. You're the right height. You're the right look. You could play Reagan. Sure I could. Right? Sing for Reagan. Sure I could. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm going to recommend you when we get around to casting. I'm, I'm going to say, we got we to gotta get Omar. Uh, you got it. He's he's good. And, and who else are we going to get? <laughs> Maybe he knows some, some nice girls. That's right. Sing. <laughs> look like Nancy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. Well, there you have it, folks, the talented and hardworking and charming Ron Dante. Thanks for being on my show, Ron. Gosh, I love talking to people who have excelled in different parts of their career, and this guy really takes the cake. I really enjoyed our chat. And yes, I would love to play Ronald Reagan in your new musical that you're collaborating on with Rupert Holmes. God, can you imagine? Rupert, if you're listening, please, please get in touch with me. I would love, love, love to have you on the show. We have so much to talk about. Uh, I mean, we could just talk about what you're working on now, and that would be a terrifically fascinating chat. So please do get in touch. Um, I was interviewed this last week by a colleague of mine, a choral colleague, 
man named John C. Hughes. He's the uh, choral director at Ripon College. And um, if you want to hear me on my soapbox, it's about an hour and 20 minutes of me rambling on about things that I think are important. Probably need a bottle of Tums and uh, a Diet Coke or a cup of coffee and maybe a jug of water. It's a long one and, uh, you know, maybe as Annex or two. I don't know. Who know. Maybe I'm not that interesting. I don't know. Who knows? But tune in. I think it comes out tomorrow. Go to John C. Hughes, J-O-H-N-C-H-U-G-H-E-S dot com. That's his front page. He's got a very, I'm looking at it right now, he's a very serious picture uh, of himself. It's lovely. He's a very, he's a family man, musician, all around great guy. We've maintained a nice friendship on Facebook and stay in touch. And I, I really like John. Uh, and from his homepage, you can go to Choir Chat. It's in the upper right-hand corner. Check it out tomorrow. I don't know if it's tomorrow or not, but visit his site. Lots of great content, especially if you're in the choral world. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Happy Monday, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and uh, rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. It would mean the world to me. Remember to always be kind to one another. Stuff, and until like next time. Dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get onto my show.